Let's go, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If you uh, don't have a Bible of your own, we'll put the text up on our screens behind me in just a little bit. Uh, if you're watching us online right now, we'll put the text up on your screen when we get to that point in our time together. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, don't have one that you can call your very own, we actually enjoy giving Bibles away right here. Uh, we actually like giving them away even more than giving away coffee cups, all right? All right, so uh, we, we think that God uses His Word for all kinds of important things. Chief among those important things is that He uses it to reveal Himself to His people. We want you to know God. We want everything in and around and uh, about your life to be shaped by Him, to by him, evaluated through the lens of him. And so if the scriptures are what he uses to, to do that in your heart and in your life, um, it's pretty smart for us to give Bibles away and find creative ways for people to be reading them. And so if you don't have one of your very own, come talk to me. Uh, use the contact form, whatever you got, and uh, uh, we can uh, fix that pretty quickly. Um, so we are in week 13 now of an effort uh, of ours to walk together through the letter that we call 1 Corinthians. Uh, it's a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a very young church in the Greek city of Corinth. And we think it was written probably somewhere between uh, 53 and 55 AD. There's a little bit of give or take in there, uh, but we're pretty sure he's in Ephesus when he's writing that. And uh, Corinth was a major city. Uh, it sat in the middle of, of an isthmus, which is a word that I struggle to pronounce, right? Isthmus, right? It sat in the middle of this little narrow strip of land between the two kind of major chunks of the land of Greece, the country of Greece. And so you got a, a northern portion, you got a southern portion, and this little strip in between that connects the two. And Corinth kind of sat in the middle, uh, it still does today, in the middle of that little narrow strip of land with a port on either side of her, two other port cities. And it kind of served as this administrative capital for a lot of transportation going through the region. Uh, there's a canal there today. Like if you zoom in on Google Maps on the city of Corinth, you'll see a canal running straight through that isthmus. All right, so that trade route is still being used. Uh, but back in Paul's day, they would actually roll ships over on giant logs. So it's just a crazy idea, and, and it sounds like a ton of work, but apparently it was less work than trying to sail around, right? And so uh, it, there was a lot of cash. There were a lot of different cultures flowing in and out of the city, uh, but we also know that Corinth was a very philosophically minded city. Oratory and public speaking were, were seen as massive deals there. They were highly valued. There were a couple of theaters in town uh, that, that people would pay money and congregate in just to hear people talk. All right? And that, that seems like a weird thing in our day. There's not a whole lot of, uh, of venues that still kind of do that. You kind of have politics and you have church and you have stand-up comedy. That's really about the only places that you'll gather and listen to somebody talk. But in Paul's day, in the first century, in the city of Greece, they had these two major theaters uh, where, where people would just stand up and start talking about stuff. And, and it didn't even matter if the, stuff, the topic was ridiculous. If you could hold the crowd, you were seen as an incredibly important person. Much like in our own culture, you, you climb the social ladder in Corinth by posturing yourself and by presenting yourself in a certain way. Have you seen that in our culture? Maybe. You, you laugh. In other words, appearances and pretense are often more important than actually doing something important. Yeah, that's definitely our world. We're very similar to Corinth in a lot of ways. And, and just like in our world, in Corinth, that led to a lot of pride. It, left to, it led to a lot of self-aggrandizement and self-exaltation. And so like it often does, the culture of the city 
influenced the culture of the church. And, and Paul, man, who loved this church dearly, he helped to begin this church. He had connections in this church. These are not strangers to him. He wants so desperately for them to walk in maturity and spiritual health and to walk in depth. And, and so he's not just going to sit back and watch this continue on. He's going to engage, right? He presses in, and the way he engages is what has shaped kind of the, the tone of, of our sermon series. Paul's going to continually uh, show this young church that, that God's kingdom is intentionally upside down from all the kingdoms of this world. That it's upside down on purpose. It values different things. It pursues different things. It celebrates and exalts different things. It feels foreign and upside down to, to those who have not been turned right side up yet. It feels drastically upside down. It feels disorienting even. But, but the question that emerges out of that is why, right? Like why would God create a kingdom that's so, that's so diametrically opposed to the cultures and the kingdoms of this world? Why would, he, why would he do it upside down on purpose like that? Wouldn't it be smarter to kind of come up with, with a plan and come up with something that's like easy for people to kind of wrap their heads around and, and kind of get behind? I almost knocked my coffee out. That would have been terrible. All right, I'm going to put that over there. All right. Wouldn't it be better to, to like come up with, with a plan that people could kind of get behind, right? Wouldn't it be better and seem smarter to, to kind of make his kingdom look, look pretty similar to the kingdoms of this world, but maybe just a little bit better in, in a few areas so that we'd be convinced and, and want to chase after it instead? That seems like the smart play to me. How about you? And the point is that, that Paul is going to continue to come back to over and over and over again throughout this letter, especially early on, is no, it's not better. It's not better at all. God has made his kingdom upside down on purpose because that is the way that he will be most glorified. That is the way that God will be made most famous. And the clearest example of that intentional upside downness is the cross of Christ. A bloody king hanging naked on a Roman execution tool. Not exactly something that people go, oh, I want more of that in my life. In chapter 1, Paul calls the cross a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. In other words, it robs us of any ability we think we might have to try to earn it. And it simultaneously robs us of any opportunity that we think that we might have to leverage it, to use it, to gain something else. And because of those twin realities, we can only ever gain access into this otherworldly kingdom through hearts that have been made alive to love what he loves and chase what he's called us to chase. It must begin in a work of the Lord. So whenever we find ourselves... In, in the middle of these two kingdoms in dissonance, right? The, the question that we've been trying to train ourselves, discipline ourselves to ask is, okay, but, but is it beautiful? Is it good? Is it true? Does it have eternal value in an otherwise fading world? And if the answers to those questions are yes, if the answers to those questions are yes, then, then maybe the dissonance is only temporary. Maybe that moment of disorientation is something that, that passes as we're turned right side up, and maybe, just maybe, it's actually 100% worth it. 
So we've been walking steadily along, and we've spent the last couple of weeks looking closely at the first two sections of chapter 7. And Paul reframed, uh, in the first part, reframed both marriage and singleness as gifts from God to make much of himself rather than make much of you and me. And, and then last week, Jeff helped us see the, the beauty of finding contentment in whatever God has given us, all right? And so now we get to close out and look at the last piece of chapter 7, this third section. Um, and I promise you, I did not plan for this section to fall on Valentine's Day. But here we are. <laughs> and either the Spirit is sovereign over our preaching calendar, or He ain't. All right, and so I'm going to trust that He is. And we're going to dig into it. You ready? Verse 25. Paul says this. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Okay, let's call a time out there. So the word betrothed here is actually the Greek word uh, for virgin, parthenos, all right? Uh, and so uh, whenever you see that word in the Bible, it's often uh, translated just as virgin there. Uh, but the way that Paul is using it in this context, he's talking about something much, much, much deeper than just somebody who hasn't had sexual intercourse yet. This is, this is the way that you would speak of a young woman who was on the pathway to getting married, all right? This is the context that we're talking about here. And so that's why the ESV renders that as betrothed. He says, uh, and we, we talked about this a couple of years ago, right? Um, uh, when we spent time talking about the different pieces of the, the Jewish wedding uh, ceremony. Um, we, you know, I think it was a couple of years ago. I don't know how long ago. Time flies, right? All right, so um, it, it's the w Jewish wedding celebration. It's significantly longer, and it's a much more drawn-out deal uh, than what we celebrate in our culture. We, we kind of have an engagement thing, but then everything just kind of leads to this, this moment of, of celebration in a wedding ceremony, right? And it all happens in a day. But in, in a Jewish culture, it was, it was a much more drawn, out thing and, and, and betrothal and, and what we would call engagement, they do have some similarities, but they're not at all the same thing. They're not at all the same thing. In ancient Jewish culture and in much of the Greek world as well, betrothal was a contractual level agreement. It was a contractual level commitment. And more than just a ring was passed around. All right? It would have been incredibly common in the, wor in the world that they're living in to negotiate that future marriage for a long time before they ever actually came to terms. It may be several meetings and pull in different family members. And once you finally agree to those terms and got to the betrothal stage, it usually lasted for way more than a year before you ever actually consummated the marriage. So it was an incredibly long and drawn out deal. And, and this is the stage that, that Mary and Joseph were in, uh, in, in, the, in the Christmas narrative, right? When they had to travel to, to Bethlehem for the census. They, they weren't fully married yet. They hadn't come together, right? Uh, and so, but Mary was required to travel with Joseph to his ancestral home to be counted as a part of his family. Because for Rome's purposes, they were married, Right? And so they were officially connected, and they were making plans for the day when they would finally come together, but it hadn't actually happened yet. And so translators here, man, they, they kind of have a choice to make when they're, when they're translating this, when they're figuring out exactly what words and what vocabulary to use. If you're looking at a translation other than the ESV right now, it, it might say virgin there instead of betrothed. And they are virgins. They, they are, in the sense that we would all naturally think of. But Paul is speaking to those who, who are in the middle of this, uh, of, of this reality of, of being promised, but not yet actually married. Of being committed and working on things and making giant plans for things, 
but not actually married yet. Speaking to those who are beginning to make and act on gigantic future plans. And just like in our own culture, right? Like Think about what that was like for you or what you hope it'll be like for you. There's a thousand things, layers getting added on top of that as you're trying to figure out, do I take this step or do I not take this step? Do I take this step with this person or is this person not the person I should be taking this step with? Personal desires and emotions, family requirements, class structures, financial considerations. It it would have been incredibly common in that culture for two young people to make these grandiose plans about their future and then spend the next several years trying to position themselves and work their tails off to finally get to the place where they can act on those grandiose plans. Hey, you think that maybe, just maybe, the Apostle Paul has any wisdom to share with young people who are about to make giant life decisions? I think he's got some wisdom to share with those who are desperately trying to get to that next level so they can be happy. Desperately trying to position themselves and so they can reach their dream of one day being married. I think he can speak eternal realities of the gospel into that temporary situation. And so he says here, this isn't a command from the Lord. He's not, not laying down rules for for people to follow it's it's only his own judgment on the matter but by god's mercy maybe we can trust his advice right so what is that advice look at verse 26 he says i think that in view of the present distress it is good for a person to remain as he is are you bound to a wife do not seek to be free are you free from a wife do not seek a wife But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. So Paul says, in view of the present distress. So what's the distress he's talking about? Well, there's actually a little bit of debate. Um, Either there's some kind of hardship going on uh, in and around the the city of Corinth that everybody's having to deal with. And and some scholars and commentators uh, like to argue that, that maybe there was a famine going on during this time period. In other words, the economy is down, people are struggling, and so there's some wisdom in not rushing into some kind of major life change at this moment. You know, just keep your head down, keep at work, and, and, and ride out the storm, and then after all this is over, then everything will be okay, right? And, and maybe, maybe you kind of walked through a similar scenario when you were thinking about getting married, right? Uh, like Things are just kind of bad right now, but if you, if you hold it off for a moment, then maybe, maybe that'll be better. But I don't get the impression from pretty much anything else that the Apostle Paul writes that he's interested in being the uh, temporary life advice kind of guy. He seems to be more of the, this is what I tell you to do because it's the always, always the right thing to, t- to do kind of guy, right? There's, there's different kinds of, of counselors out there. There's the people who say, well, considering the circumstances, maybe. All right. Paul's more of the, do this because it's the right thing to do guy. And so the other option for this present distress that Paul's talking about the quickly fading world around us. The world we're living in, I don't know if you realize this, but it's a little bit broken. And the Bible makes it very, very clear, it's got a shelf life. It's got a shelf life. It does not matter what you try to build in this world. And forget about how talented you are. Forget about how industrious you are. Forget about what your work ethic is. It does not matter what you try to build in this world because one day, eventually, it's all coming down. 
Now hear me, that includes the marriage relationship that you're so desperately trying to make happen. That's temporary too. As beautiful and wonderful as marriage obviously is, and it's clearly one of the best gifts that God has given to his people, but even that is still only a temporary reality in a fallen world. Marriage is clearly meant for a lifetime, but the entirety of your life is a singular drop on an eternally long timeline. Eternally long timeline. So while it's clearly something to be enjoyed, something to even be celebrated as God's good gift to his people, to ever go beyond that enjoyment and ever go beyond that celebration of who God is for giving it, to go, to, to go beyond that and try to see marriage as some kind of finish line or something, some kind of attainment that you should put your hope in. Church, that's a horrendously short view of what God is actually planning for you. A horrendously short view. You've taken your eyes off of an eternal prize and you've placed it on something that even our most, our most wonderful and beloved stories can only ever maintain like 80 to 90 years worth of stuff. Like, like think about, think about the, the most epic anniversary celebrations you've ever witnessed. For me, it's grandparents and great-grandparents Older saints that I've known who've walked faithfully together and been married for 75, 80 years. Incredible stories. Don't we all just love those stories? Don't you just smash that like button when you see it on Facebook? And they are incredible stories. But what's 90 years in the scope of eternity? It's kind of small. In fact, it's barely anything. So Paul's advice here to some young folks in the church in Corinth who are spending all their time and all their attention working to posture themselves and position themselves to finally attain marriage, trying to finally get to that place that's supposed to make them happy and satisfied. His advice is that it'd be better if they focused instead on something that'll last much longer than 80 or 90 years. There's a better thing to aim for. Oh, but, but wait a minute. Like, like, I remember two weeks ago, we looked at the first part of chapter 7, and Paul made a big old deal there about just like telling people not to overthink this stuff, and just, like, if God has called you to get married, just go ahead and get married. Quit making this a gigantic deal. Just, just, just stop overthinking it. Just go do it. Just go get married. Didn't, didn't Paul say that? Yeah, he did. Yeah, he very much did. And he told those who were avoiding marriage because they thought it would gain them something, he tells them to quit chasing their petty attempts to exalt themselves and just go ahead and get married. And here, at the end of chapter 7, he tells those who are, who are chasing marriage, desperately chasing marriage because they think that it will finally gain them something, he tells them to quit exalting themselves and just like not, not worry about it. You don't have to chase this. Marriage or non-marriage is not the issue. Never has been, never was, but their idolatrous heart is. 
Their idolatrous heart is an issue, a core-level sinful bent that takes good things, even God-glorifying things, and turns them, shifts them into self-glorifying things. And the more honest you are with yourself, the faster you'll compile your own list of those kind of failures, right? We, we do that with more than just marriage, don't we? We do it with all kinds of stuff. I'm, I'm pretty guilty on that. So Paul doesn't say here that either marriage or singleness or sinful or out of bounds for God's people. He doesn't say that there's only one pathway for the faithful. No, he points the Corinthians past those realities to a far bigger one, a, a transcendent reality. He points them to a coming kingdom that knows no end. He points them to the good king who will joyfully use both marriage and singleness as he sees fit to prepare his people for that endless kingdom. And we ended at this little last couple of weeks, but Paul's about to make it explicit here. There's an assumption, at least in the culture that I grew up in, there's an assumption uh, in, in the more conservative parts of our culture that singleness is seen as the lesser of two available options. Like, like that marriage should be seen as the default. But you know, singleness is a really great option for those who can't find that special someone. Or is that not the culture we grew up in? But in verse 28 here, Paul says that he wishes that more people would walk in singleness because it would spare them what he calls worldly troubles. So, so what are those troubles? What, what is he talking about? Well, I think there's actually a couple of things. And the first one starts off in verse 29. He says this, This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. Okay, so the first trouble to arise, according to Paul, out of pursuing marriage is one that's really common, not just to marriage, but to pretty much everybody. It's something that's common to other stages of life as well. It's common to those who are walking in, uh, in mourning right now. It's, those who, it's common to those who are celebrating stuff. It's even common, apparently, to those who are focusing all their attention on business affairs. So what is that? Well, the problem is that we, we forget that this world is not our home. We get tunnel vision. And we buy into the lie that this particular moment ought to be the entirety of our focus. The entirety of our focus. And, and, and that doesn't mean that these things are bad. Paul's certainly not telling people that they shouldn't mourn and they shouldn't celebrate. He's not saying that we shouldn't involve ourselves in, in buying or selling things. He's saying that there's a temptation in all of us to repeatedly fall victim to this tunnel vision. And it crops up here and it crops up here and it crops up here. And we need to work hard to approach these things in a way that shows them to be clearly temporary realities. We should live and operate in such a way that shows that we're aiming for a coming kingdom rather than one we might be currently living in. That temptation to tunnel vision, it can happen in marriage as well. You can forget about what God has called you to aim at and you can focus on the here and now. And so, and so, while, tra so while marriage should obviously clearly be seen as a good gift from God, it, listen, it's not without its trade-offs. It's not all pros. There are some cons as well. 
There's, there's definitely spiritual benefits to marriage, but, but you need to remember that there are also spiritual costs involved. And so for those that God is calling to singleness, Paul would have you see here that, that God is actually helping you avoid a different type of temptation that's common to many people. He's actually helping you escape and, and not have to fight a spiritual battle that some others are going to have to fight. But that's not the only trouble that Paul would have you avoid. Look at verse 32. It says, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Okay, so, so what, what, what's Paul saying here? He's saying that at the end of the day, married folks have divided attention, right? They've got things that God has called them to as an individual, and they've got things that God has called them to do as a spouse. And if they've got kids, they've got things that God has called them to do as a parent. And all of those things are good, wonderful, God-glorifying things to be called to. They should be celebrated and diligently chased after and walked in faithfulness, right? Why? Why? Because in so doing, they build up families, and they build up the church, and they build up the kingdom of God, and every, everything is better off. Like the world is a better place when, when God's people handle those three tasks faithfully. Right? Does anybody doubt that? When God's people are, are, are great Christians and great spouses and great parents, isn't the world a better place? Absolutely, right? Nobody would doubt that. But there's also only so many hours in the day. There's only so much work that could be done. It doesn't matter how organized or efficient someone might be. When you, when you divide up all those callings and the responsibilities that come with them, you can only ever get so much done. And the church and the world even are blessed by people who try to spin all those plates at the same time. But they're distracted. And if the kingdom of God consisted only of those with divided attention, man, we'd be in a ton of trouble. We'd be in a ton of trouble. And so for those that, that God is calling to singleness, Listen, Paul would have you see here that God is actually elevating you to be a more influential part of his kingdom than those he's called to be married. He's called you to have a more influential role in the kingdom. Why? Because you don't have to worry about divided attention. You have a freedom to be wholly devoted to the Lord that your married brother and sister don't have. And in doing so, you get to play a massive role in building up the church and building up God's kingdom in ways that many others just can't do. You walk into any healthy church out there, and you ask them to make a list of their best volunteers, and nine times out of ten, that list is going to come back with a whole bunch of single people on it. It is. Never married, formerly married, however they got there, that's usually their best volunteers. 
doesn't mean that churches aren't also full of, of great married people who walk as incredible volunteers. That's obviously true. Ours certainly is. But no matter what church you walk into, their list is going to lean heavy on the single folk. Every time. Why? Because God has given you a superpower. He's given you a superpower that all the married folks in the room can't keep pace with. You can do what the married folks in the room don't have enough hours in the day to pull off. The notion that single people in a church are some kind of second-class member of the kingdom is one of the most unbiblical ideas I've ever come across. It is. It's one of the most unbiblical ideas I've ever come across. The idea that, that you're in some kind of holding pattern waiting for God to finally release you and get married so you can actually start serving. It's hogwash. It's ridiculous. It's also completely opposite of what Paul just said. God wants so much good for his bride that he intentionally calls some of his people to remain single so the church can be strengthened by their undivided service. The church is better because you're here. You're not second class. If anything, you're the first class. And I get it, man. This way of seeing marriage and singleness, it's kind of upside down from our world, isn't it? Right? Like, it seems to be the exact opposite of the way these things are typically viewed in the culture that we find ourselves living in. We, like, I don't know if you've noticed this, but we live in a society that likes to use both of these options, marriage and singleness, as platforms for our own self-exaltation. Whether it's attaining our satisfaction and finally finding the one, or it's attaining our satisfaction and being free and untethered. As a culture, we tend to leverage both of these as tools to try to make much of ourselves. And what we see here in 1 Corinthians is a God who apparently has no qualms at all about leaning in close and saying, well, actually, I've given both, but not for you, it's for me. I've given both of them to leverage things for making much of me and for the expansion of my glory. I give one for my purposes, and oh, by the way, I give the other one for my purposes too. Aren't you impressed? And those purposes are to sanctify you and to leverage you for the building up of my church and my kingdom. Doesn't that just sound like a, just a romantic little fairy tale? Couldn't you just see that playing out in the Lifetime movie? Happy Valentine's Day, guys. There's, there's no doubt about it. What we're talking about here is completely upside down from the culture that we live in. It's completely upside down to the knee-jerk responses of our heart, right? There, there are things that well up inside of us when, when we read this kind of stuff like, you ever wonder why that's there? There's no doubt about it. What we're talking about here is backwards and upside down in every way. The question to be answered, though, if we're going to continue disciplining ourselves, is it beautiful? Is it good? Is it true? Does it have eternal value in an otherwise fading world? See, when we begin to actually view and treat our relationships or, or even our lack of a relationship as a God-given calling with an eternal purpose, it's never going to appear as something that the world thinks is impressive. 
It just won't. In fact, they'll probably see it as contemptible. Add it to the list. It's growing every week. But here's something it will do. It will become obvious for us and even natural for us to leverage that relationship or even that lack of a relationship as something that God will use more powerfully and more effectually than anything that we could have ever dreamt up on our own. He'll use it in an absolutely massive way. It will become an incredibly powerful tool in the hands of our good and gracious God. And he will use it in a way that leads simultaneously to your eternal blessing and his greatest glory. See, the hang-up that many of us have concerning all this is is not that our desires are misplaced. (laughs) We're feeble and frail, right? Our desires get misplaced all the time. The the hang-up is that we allow those desires to crowd out everything else that God has promised to us, and we give them the final voice in deciding where the finish line ought to be. We give them the final voice in deciding what our ultimate prize is. And Paul fights against that by reminding the the Corinthians here that that God is playing a much longer and a much more fulfilling game. Much more fulfilling. He's got better plans for you than even what you want for yourself. That's a bold sentence to say. So I'm going to say it again. God has better plans for you than even what you want for yourself. Do you trust him in that? Do you genuinely believe that he is good? Do you genuinely believe that he's smarter than you? Listen, do you genuinely believe that whatever he has for you when it comes to your relationship status might be intended for your deepest possible joy? I think we fight against that. We think we know better. Paul says in verse 35, say this not for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. He would save us out of some things, to secure us for something better. Look at verse 36. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong it has, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desires under control and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his, his betrothed does well, and, excuse me, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. Paul says that, that, that you find that if you find yourself preparing for marriage and, and, and you realize that, that God would no longer have you pursue that, then don't force it. Shut it down. Don't, don't do it just because. Well, isn't it going to be painful? Yeah, yeah, it will. It's going to stink. But hey, you know what's incredibly more painful? Marrying someone just because you thought you were supposed to. Marrying someone you shouldn't just because you already made some other minor commitments to them seems like a terrible idea. Every pastor, and I really mean every pastor, has watched somebody they, they love dearly and want to see flourish. Every pastor has watched someone run off to marry someone they should never have married because they thought it would fulfill some kind of loneliness in their heart. 
Every pastor has walked through that. And hear me, every pastor has also counseled some married person who's still lonely because marrying didn't fix their real problem. Happens all the time. Quite used to it, actually. If God has called you to get married, quit overthinking it. Get married. If God hasn't called you to get married, then forcing it just because you think you're supposed to kind of creates a train wreck. It will always leave you much worse off than just staying single would have. And I really mean that, always. We aren't smarter than him. We can't manipulate our way into something that's more satisfying than his design. Think you can handle the controls better? Good luck. Verse 39. Paul says, A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Okay, so we referred to this a couple of weeks ago uh, when we were looking at the first part of chapter 7. Paul tells uh, wives here that they are bound to their husbands as long as their husband uh, is still alive. And, but then after he dies, they're free to marry again. So um, e- e- even, if, uh, even if what you're walking through what we would call a biblically appropriate or biblically qualified, I guess, reason for divorce. You you shouldn't just run off and go get married again, he says. And and the idea buried in that that is that even though it's astronomically small, the chance is out there on the horizon somewhere that your spouse who did the terrible thing might come to repentance and be reconciled to God and finally be reconciled to you. That's the hope. That's the happily ever after in this story. And I, and I know all the yeah buts that rise to the surface after, out of that. I, I do. I'm, you, you don't get to be in ministry very long before you start hearing those. Well, what about this? And what about that? And I know all the clarifying questions that we want to try to answer is, you know, and apply specifics to our own personal situations. I sat down and listened to hundreds of those questions too. But out of love for you, the most tender and pastoral question I can call you to answer is this. Hey, what do you think those yeah buts and clarifying questions reveal about what you're putting your hope in? What do you think they reveal about what you're putting your hope in? Don't, don't mishear me. They're not unimportant questions. Not at all. In fact, I, we're all trying to walk faithfully before Jesus and do what he tells us to do in the real world. And so eventually asking those questions are actually healthy. They're not out-of-bounds questions at all. But if our hearts race to those questions, if we desperately have to have those questions answered before we can decide whether or not God is right, what does that tell us about what we're chasing? What does that tell us about our hearts if we make a beeline to these questions? What does it tell us about our hearts if we need those questions answered before we'll act obediently? God doesn't give a clear answer here. He doesn't doesn't lead Paul to expand on this thought at all. 1 Corinthians 7, 39 kind of appears on, the, on an island, right? It just seems kind of tacked onto the end of a topic about some other stuff. So what if God never answers? If God were to leave us with nothing more than what he said in this one verse, could we trust him enough to, with our obedience? Is he still good? Is he still worthy of following? Is his presence still better if you never get the other things you want? 
Is he? Paul gives an allowance here for remarriage to one situation. It doesn't mean that other situations aren't allowed, but he only gives it for one. When your spouse dies, you're permitted to marry again. And he adds, only in the Lord. In other words, don't make the same mistakes you made the last time. But permission and ought to, very different things. Look at our last verse, verse 40. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. Hey, can we be honest? Some of you older single ladies have been sitting there keeping your mouth shut and you've been thinking to yourself, I've had a husband, I don't want another. I don't want another man in my house. I know what it's like. I'd rather avoid that nonsense. Thank you very much. Ladies, Paul gets you. He understands exactly what you're thinking. It is, you got a verse. Husbands had a verse at the beginning of chapter 7. This one's yours. Embrace it. So what in the world do we do with this, right? Like, how in the world do we respond to God's word this morning? Because let's be honest, like, most of the people in here are past this life stage. We, most of what we talked about applies to people who are kind of getting ready for marriage and on that pathway. And, like, most of us here, myself included, like, we're well beyond that, right? Like, what in the world do we do with this text? Like, how do we respond to God's word? Well, if you're a follower of Jesus, I, our, our response is the same as it is every single week. We we repent of sin and we lean into what God has revealed about himself in the text. But this week, man, I, I think he's showing us that he's not only sovereign over the little things in our life, he's sovereign over the biggest things in our life. And we either treat him like he's sovereign in that moment or we, or we treat him like we're the one in charge. Can that extend to things beyond getting ready for marriage? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it, it really can. And whether God has called you to singleness or marriage, neither option is designed to end on you. Whichever one God has given you, whether you're in this season of preparing for it or you're well beyond the season for preparing for it, whatever God has called you to, hear me, it is not designed to end on you. Whichever option it is, both of them have been given to sanctify you and to use you for His good purposes rather than your own. So maybe you're not preparing for marriage in this season of your life, but whatever season you happen to be in, your calling is to see your marriage or your lack of a marriage the exact same way that God does. Something he was pleased to give to you to make much of himself. Because we're all dealing with selfish, sinful hearts here, mine included, I'm guessing there are probably some things that need to be repented of in order to get to that point, right? Namely, our our deeply sinful desire to maintain control. Our deeply sinful desire to sit on the throne and be the captain of our fate. I'm guilty. His kingdom is indeed upside down. It's disorienting at first, but what if it's better? Like actually better? What if it's beautiful and good and true? What if he's making eternal promises to us as we watch everything else fade away? I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. That's a time for you to put action to whatever God is stirring in your heart. If you want somebody to talk to, I'll be down front here. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, I'm glad you're hanging out with us today. I really am. Listen, you can respond to God's word too, and you do that by meeting Jesus. Listen, I am fully aware fully aware that the idea of a God you don't know being sovereign over your relationships probably doesn't sound all that appealing to you, all right? Um, might even sound like a breach of your personal autonomy. 
surely he can't know what you want and need more than you do. Right? Right? The Bible teaches that God is creator and active sustainer of all things. It teaches that he is the giver of every good gift, that, that he sees the end from the beginning, that he is uh, for all things and to all things. It was created through him and to him and for him. So the answer is yes, he, he does know what you need and want better than you do. In fact, it's not even close. You have no idea. He knows all. So, so why do we fight against him then? Well, the Bible also teaches that we are separated relationally from God because of our sin. Um, sin fleshes itself out in a billion different ways, but it is always rooted in a core level desire in each and every one of us to be lords of our heart and kings of our destiny instead of God. We don't merely fail to try hard enough to be good people. That is not what the Bible teaches about our fallenness. We are rebels who are actively trying to usurp the proper king. We are running a coup against the king of the cosmos. And we rightly deserve the punishment that is owed to traitorous insurrection. But God is rich in mercy and he loves us with a great love. And even while we were dead in our trespasses and sin, God is pleased, joyfully pleased to make some of us alive. He sent his son, Jesus, who put on flesh and dwelt among us. He lived a sinless life that neither you nor I are capable of living. He died on the cross as an innocent substitute to make payment for your sin. He was raised again from the dead as a vindication of his perfect and sufficient righteousness. And now as the king who conquered sin and death, he calls on you in this moment to respond to him in repentance and faith. And listen, you can do that right now. You can do that this morning, right where you are, whether you're in the room or you're watching us online. You can respond to Jesus this morning by meeting Jesus. Will Jesus continue to mess with your heart and life until, until all things are brought under his lordship? Yeah, yeah, he ain't done with you. Not even close. In fact, he's relentless. But the more he pursues you and refines you, the more you'll love him for doing so the more you'll realize you'll bet you're better off when he does so because the hound of heaven is good. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. I'd love to be helpful to you. If you're here in the room, I'll be down front. If you're watching us online, you can use the contact form linked in the video description. But whoever you are and however God's called you to respond to his word today, let's respond together as a family. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for 1 Corinthians 7. Whether we are in a season of our life that this text applies to us very obviously or a season of our life where we have to infer some things. Help us trust your goodness. Help us trust your great love for us. Help us trust your wisdom. And rip away all my claims at lordship. Humble us before your word and before yourself. <clears throat> Whether you've given us marriage or singleness, would you give us eyes to see it as you see it? Never is something that ends on our own benefit, while it definitely comes with joy something always intended to make much of you and to build your kingdom. 
God, I know that that's hard for us to, to grab a hold of and celebrate. Especially if you want the other option. Would you show us that your presence as we walk in what you've given us is better than whatever that other option is? Help us walk faithfully. We're going to need your strength to do that. I am not strong enough. I am not smart enough. I don't have the work ethic. I don't. But you are good. You've promised never to leave us. And even when we fail, we can trust your grace. Show yourself to be wonderful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.